The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. The subject that we're looking at, uh, Christ in all the scriptures, is, is sometimes seen as a kind of uh, variety of preaching. Uh, there, there are people who say, well, uh, I, I preach uh, uh, in a... Uh, I, I preach in a, in a covenantal way. Or somebody will say, uh, I, my preaching is uh, uh, strictly expository. Or someone will say, uh, uh, my, uh, my preaching is uh, exclusively textual. And then someone else will say, well, my preaching, uh, I like to preach the history of redemption. Uh, what I want to persuade you <laughs> is that there are no options that uh, the center of the Word of God is found in Jesus Christ, uh, that the whole Bible points to Him, and that if we fail to preach Christ, we fail to preach the Scripture, we fail to preach the Gospel, we fail to preach the purpose and plan of God. Uh, so uh, the, the point then is to see that uh, if, uh, if God's judgment had been poured out when our first parents sinned in the Garden of Eden, uh, there would have been no human history, right? No history at all. Uh, there is human history. Why? Because God purposed to send the son of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. In other words, uh, because God in his eternal plan had purposed to send uh, Jesus Christ into the world. So, Jesus Christ is the only reason that there is such a thing as human, no history at all. Uh, there is human history, why? Because God purposed to send the son of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. In other words, uh, because God in his eternal plan had purposed to send uh, Jesus Christ into the world. So, Jesus Christ is the only reason that there is such a thing as human history. And he's certainly the only reason there is such a thing as the history of redemption. Because uh, God has maintained human history in his common grace in order that he might uh, provide the Savior for those whom he had chosen before the foundation of the world. So the whole point of uh, the history of the Bible is that Jesus Christ is going to send, uh, that will be sent by the Father in the, into the world uh, to be our Redeemer. And so uh, as, we, as we think about that, and that's uh, what we'll be looking at, it, it certainly creates a, uh, a presupposition, to say the least, uh, that the things that God does... Uh, in the history of redemption uh, are preparing for the coming of his son and that the things that God says in the history of revelation 
are explaining his mighty acts uh, with a view to the coming of his son. And so uh, as, we, as we think about that, and that's uh, what we'll be looking at, it, it certainly creates a, uh, a presupposition, to say the least, uh, that the things that God does uh, in the history of redemption uh, are preparing for the coming of his son, and that the things that God says in the history of Revelation are explaining his mighty acts uh, with a view to the coming of his son. Uh, So uh, it's not just that we know it uh, from a theological perspective. We're told it explicitly uh, in the scriptures themselves. You remember uh, that uh, trip uh, that the two disciples were taking from Jerusalem to Emmaus uh, at the, on the morning, on Easter morning of all things, and they're leaving Jerusalem. Luke tells us about it in the last chapter of his gospel. They're leaving Jerusalem on Easter morning, uh, although uh, they know the tomb is empty, And although uh, there are women who have brought the report that they saw angels in the tomb, but in spite of that, they're they're leaving uh, discouraged and depressed. Uh, They had thought that it was he who would redeem Israel, you see. Uh, But now they didn't know what to think anymore. And uh, so they go discouraged and downcast, and Jesus joins them on the road as they're walking along. Uh, Such a dramatic story that Luke tells us. And uh, as they go along, uh, he joins them and he says, uh, uh, what are you talking about as you walk together? And uh, they they just stand still looking sad at first. Uh, And then one of them, Cleopas, says, uh, uh, "Are, are, are you the only one who's stayed at Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened? Uh, How could you not know? Everybody knows uh, what has happened. And then uh, uh, Jesus says, well, what what happened? (laughs) What things? And they said, why, the things concerning Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we hoped that it was he who should redeem Israel. (laughs) See, that's the state of their understanding and their faith. They know he was a great prophet, and, and uh, they're not uh, sure about much more, but uh, they're sure about what their hope was, that he would redeem Israel, but uh, now he's dead. But then they add, yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things came to pass. Now, why would they say the third day, do you think? Well, it sounds like a little echo of what Jesus had said, doesn't it? That he would rise on the third day. So it sort of suggests that maybe they had somewhere in the back of their minds that idea as well. And then, uh, moreover, certain women of our company amazed us, having been early at the tomb. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they'd also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. But they're discouraged. They don't even, they don't believe women. You, you can understand that uh, being uh, male types uh, at this point, you see. But they don't believe the angels either, see. Not even angels do they credit. Uh, so it's, uh, it's strange, isn't it? 
No wonder Jesus says what he does. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Uh, wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then when Luke summarizes the teaching of Jesus in the 40 days be between his uh, resurrection and his ascension, uh, he uses the same language, uh, verse 45 of the chapter, well, uh, excuse me, verse uh, 44 of the chapter. Uh, Jesus said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was yet with you, that all things must needs be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their mind that they might understand the scriptures. They opened their mind that they might understand the scriptures. And he said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. So Jesus thought that both his sufferings and resurrection were predicted in the Old Testament and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name unto all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus thought that the worldwide spread of the gospel was predicted in the Old Testament. The gospel message and its dissemination to all nations is what Jesus says the Old Testament teaches. And then he says, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I send forth the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city until you receive power from on high. So uh, it's interesting, isn't it, uh, that Jesus, on that uh, walk with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, when he joined them, uh, he didn't turn and say, Cleopas. You know, in the garden, he'd said, Mary. And when he said Mary, she recognized him. But he didn't say Cleopas to give that recognition, did he? Instead, he gave them a Bible study. <laughs> he went back and started to explain from the Old Testament all the things that must be fulfilled and why it must happen that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory. Incidentally, showing them how much more he is uh, than just the prophet that they had described in their words to him, right? And then uh, uh, that's, uh, that's amazing uh, when you stop and think about it. Uh, he didn't uh, reveal himself. He uh, interpreted the scriptures. Uh, to understand, you see, that he had risen from the dead, they needed to understand the promises and what it meant that he had risen from the dead. That the resurrection was not just a, a surge in history, an inexplicable event. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed uh, sometimes at... Uh, how people seem to feel uh, that uh, you could just allow the resurrection as a very strange happening. Um, uh, Dr. Anderson from um, uh, uh, London, <coughs> who was uh, uh, the head of the British uh, InterVarsity uh, UCCF, uh, was invited, he was a, he's a, a legal scholar, he's still living, a very old man now, 
he's a legal scholar, and uh, he was invited to Harvard University to teach uh, on Islamic jurisprudence, in which he was uh, a world expert. And uh, because he's a Christian, the uh, Harvard uh, Christian Fellowship had uh, arranged to have him give a lecture at Harvard on the evidences of the resurrection. And he had a famous uh, talk that he gave on that subject. And uh, the, there was a, a big turnout. Uh, I guess there must have been uh, uh, at least 400 people there in a, in a big auditorium, maybe 500. And uh, he lectured on the evidences of the resurrection. And with uh, typical British understatement, he uh, examined the other possible uh, explanations of the empty tomb. And uh, they all none of them hold water and he did it so well that he sort of had the audience with him thinking uh, uh, well uh, yes uh, that one surely you're not even saying it as strongly as you might uh, so he went through it very beautifully there were many non-Christians there and uh, uh, it was very convincing and uh, of course after he finished uh, one student asked um, well, Dr. Anderson, uh, you believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead, but that's not all you believe about Jesus, is it? He says, well, no. <laughs> and the student said, you believe that he's God, right? And Anderson said, yes, I do. And he said, okay, prove that to us. Uh, a good question, you see. And... Uh, I, I think there that, uh, well, here at Westminster, you know the difference between presuppositional apologetics and uh, evidentialism, you see. And the evidentialist answer to that one is, uh, well, either Jesus was what he claimed to be, and he did claim to be God, or else he was uh, an imposter and uh, almost a lunatic and uh, you can't believe that he's an imposter and a lunatic therefore you have to believe his claim to be God and that was the answer that Anderson gave uh, well it, it uh, comes up a bit short you know but they had the, the faculty of Harvard uh, some, three members of the faculty of Harvard Divinity School there uh, to have a panel discussing the resurrection uh, afterwards and uh, a couple of the men from Harvard said, uh, well, we were brought up uh, in uh, evangelical churches. We were brought up as fundamentalists. But then we went to university and got enlightened. And uh, so uh, uh, our career was in uh, the liberal track. Uh, but now we're starting to have second thoughts because now we've discovered uh, that history is completely open-ended. That uh, there's, um, there's no way of predicting what can happen in history. Every event in history is by definition unique. And since history is open-ended and anything can happen, uh, even a resurrection could have happened. And we recognize that now, so we're willing to allow for the possibility of a physical resurrection. And many of the evangelical students at Harvard were rejoicing afterwards that even Harvard Divinity School professors could believe in a resurrection. Uh, but uh, uh, when you stop to think about it, <laughs> will that do? See? 
Of course not. Uh, it's not only what happened, it's what it means. Uh, there were, Jesus rebuked those who uh, uh, saw the miracles and w were glad to be fed by the bread, uh, but who did not understand the sign, who did not understand what the miracle signified. And uh, Jesus, when he met those disciples on uh, the road to Emmaus, was giving them the significance of his resurrection. And that's what they needed to understand. See, if he had said Cleopas, they would have known he was alive. But he wanted them to understand why he was alive and why he had died and indeed why he had come. And to understand that, they need to understand the whole, the whole program of God's uh, plan of redemption and the way in which uh, that plan uh, is fulfilled. So, uh, now, let's look then at that history of redemption. And uh, I would like to start uh, at the point of the Exodus, uh, because the first five books of Moses are given to Israel in the context of the establishment of that nation. So uh, we'll look at it uh, beginning with uh, the, the Exodus, the great redemptive event of the Old Testament, of course, followed up by uh, the return from exile, uh, but uh, the Exodus as uh, the great event of redemption. Uh, so uh, uh, a redemption is initiated by the Lord. Now, some of you don't have these outlines yet, but they're being produced. You'll have them in the second hour. So don't think you have to write down all the outline because you'll get it. But redemption is initiated by the Lord. The Lord takes the initiative as he does throughout. It's God who calls to Adam and Eve in the garden. It's God who uh, speaks to Noah, Noah and tells him to build an ark for the saving of his house. It's God who calls Abraham from Ere the Chaldees. Uh, it's God who uh, moves in uh, the life of uh, uh, Joseph so as to uh, preserve Israel and Egypt. Uh, it's God who uh, calls Moses to the burning bush and reveals himself to Moses and sends Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt. All along the way, you see, it's always God who takes the initiative. And it's certainly God who brings Israel up out of Egypt. And I've mentioned Leviticus 26, 13, uh, where God says that he has uh, struck off uh, the yoke of Israel and made them to go upright. Uh, the Israelites were under the yoke of uh, bondage in Egypt. God uh, broke the yoke and delivered them. <clears throat> now, the uh, uh, in the... Uh, some of the circles in Latin America, uh, the liberation theology has been developed and the emphasis put on the uh, uh, deliverance from uh, Egypt as the great redemptive event of the Old Testament. Uh, well, it certainly is, uh, but the difficulty in the theology of liberation is that uh, so much emphasis is put on the actual deliverance from slavery, that there's very little emphasis on the redemptive purpose of uh, the, the deliverance. Because God's word through Moses to Pharaoh was, let my people go that they may serve me. 
and serve, the verb avad uh, means uh, uh, to enter into covenantal service. It also means to worship. Uh, the, the same verb means to worship. So, uh, let my people go that they may worship me. In other words, God brought them out of Egypt so that he might bring them to Sinai. And Sinai was that trysting place in the wilderness where God met with Israel and uh, revealed his covenant to them. So he uh, did deliver them by his great redeeming act and uh, brought them to himself uh, at Sinai, at the very place where he had revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. uh, He delivered Israel and brought them to that very spot. And there he gave them uh, his commandments, uh, giving them the law uh, for those whom he had already redeemed. I am the Lord your God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, God's uh, covenant is given to a redeemed people. Uh, a covenant uh, that he made with the fathers, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is now uh, executed and implemented as he has brought them out of Egypt, brought them to himself, and established his covenant with them. Uh, But you will recall that there's another issue that comes up right away. For you see, it was God's purpose not only uh, to uh, deliver the people, uh, but to be with them. Uh, God says in Exodus uh, 19, uh, verse 4, that I brought you on eagles' wings unto myself. Let my people go that they might serve me. God says, I brought you out in order to bring you in and to bring you in to me, to myself. Uh, The great promise of the covenant is, I will be your God, you will be my people. And so that bond of being... uh, their God and they being his people, uh, that's the bond that's sealed at Sinai. Uh, But that bond was no more sealed uh, than it was threatened. Uh, Because you will recall that uh, uh, while Moses was up in Mount Sinai receiving the law, uh, the uh, Israelites uh, were at the foot of the mountain and they got tired of waiting these 40 days and they said, what's happened to Moses? We don't know what's become of him. So they tell uh, Aaron that they uh, want to get things organized and get moving and forget about Moses and uh, develop their own structure of worship so they would have Aaron make them a golden calf uh, presumably uh, not to worship another god at least that's not the interpretation Aaron puts on it uh, but uh, to build a golden calf to worship the Lord uh, Egyptian style worship for uh, Yahweh the God of Israel which uh, was if they would have Aaron make them a golden calf uh, presumably uh, not to worship another god at least that's not the interpretation Aaron puts on it uh, but uh, to build a golden calf to worship the Lord uh, Egyptian style worship for uh, Yahweh the God of Israel which uh, was of course what God had expressly forbidden in the second commandment which they had all heard spoken by the very voice of God from the top of the mountain so the people rebel 
and uh, Moses coming down from the mountain joined by Joshua. Uh, here's all the racket down there and uh, Joshua gets all excited. He thinks it's uh, a battle. They're fighting some enemy and he needs to be down there to run the troops. And Moses says, no, it's not that. <laughs> it's a big party going on down there. Uh, they're, they're having a blast and it, it's an Egyptian style orgy that they've uh, developed. And, uh, of course, it also means uh, a full-scale rebellion against uh, the Lord. Because uh, Moses says, who is on the Lord's side? And only uh, the people of Levi, his own tribe, only the men of Levi respond to that call. And uh, the others, you see, are not on the Lord's side. Don't miss that. It's a full-scale rebellion on the part of all the tribes with the exception of Levi. And so the Levites fight to put down the rebellion, and thousands die before the rebellion is finally extinguished. Uh, but by the power of God, uh, they are successful, and the rebellion's put down. Uh, so what comes next? Uh, well, uh, very, uh, very significant, isn't it? Uh, what's God going to do with this people? Uh, he brought them out of Egypt that they might be his people, but uh, this is how they behave. They immediately turn away from him at the very first opportunity. And so in uh, Exodus 32, uh, God says uh, that uh, he's going to uh, uh, blot uh, the people out, destroy them, uh, remove them from the face of the earth, and make a new nation out of Moses. And uh, in Exodus 32, uh, Moses says, Lord, uh, don't do that. Lord, if you're going to blot Israel out from the earth, well, blot me out too. Blot me out with them. Uh, I don't want you to make a nation of me if uh, Israel is destroyed. And, uh, you know, Moses' arguments about that. What will the Egyptians say, Lord, if, uh, if you do this? What will happen to your great name? Where will be your glory, God, if this happens? And uh, so Moses says that won't do. So then God has another plan. And uh, uh, what's this plan? Well, the next plan is God says, um, uh, I won't go up in the midst of you. That's too dangerous. You're a stiff-necked people. And if I go up in the midst of you, I'll consume you in a moment. Uh, that's, uh, he, he says that in verse 5. You are stiff-necked uh, of uh, 33. Chapter 33, verse 5. You are a stiff-necked people. If I go up into the midst of you, Really, that ought to be in. If I go up in the midst of you for one moment, I will consume you. Uh, that, that's the, the danger. <clears throat> and so God says, instead of going up in the midst, I'll go before you in the presence of my angel. And I'll drive out the enemy. I'll drive out the Canaanites. I'll give you the land. I'll keep all my promises. But one thing I won't do, I won't go up in the midst of you. Now, it's sometimes interpreted that... Uh, Instead of God's going, the angel will go. Uh, but uh, that's not the explanation. Well, you see that it can't be if you look back in uh, Exodus 23, uh, because there we're told about the angel, Exodus 23:21. Take heed before him, hearken to his voice, provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. <laughs> 
See, the angel is not less threatening than God because the angel is the angel of the presence, the angel of the Lord's presence. God's name is in the angel, as we learned from that passage in Exodus 23. So it isn't that God says, I won't go up in the midst of you. That's too dangerous. Instead, I'll send my angel, and that won't be so dangerous. No, no, that's not it. No, the distinction is whether God will go up in the midst of them or whether he will merely go before them in the presence of the, of the angel uh, to uh, uh, take care of their enemies in Canaan. And uh, the further uh, point about his going before them rather than in the midst of them is this, uh, that uh, God would communicate with them at a tent of meeting outside the camp. And uh, that's... Uh, uh, that's described in um, the uh, uh, next section of Exodus 33, uh, how Moses uh, had the tent that was pitched outside the camp. Now, of course, the critics have a field day with this kind of thing, and, and it might be thought of as a little bit confusing because this is called the tent of meeting, and later on the tabernacle is also called the tent of meeting. But this tent of meeting that's discussed here in the setting of God's not dwelling in the midst of the people, this is not a tent for God to dwell in. The tent outside the camp is the tent where Joshua lives and not the Lord. It's the tent where God meets with Joshua and with Moses at the tent door. God says, I'll meet with you at the door of the tent. It's not where God lives. It's where God will make contact with him at this tent outside the camp. And so the whole issue is, will the tent be outside the camp or in the heart of the camp? Now, if the tent is going to be in the heart of the camp, the picture there is that that's God's tent of dwelling. That's where he lives. They all live in tents, so God will live in a tent. And that tent will be in the very heart of the camp of Israel. And if God is going to live in that tent in the heart of, the, of Israel, uh, then uh, special provisions have to be made. And while Moses was up in the mountain for those 40 days, uh, he was getting the instructions as to how that tabernacle would be built, the house of God's dwelling. Because it was God's purpose uh, not only uh, to uh, deliver Israel, uh, to take them out of Egypt, it was his purpose that he should uh, dwell with them. And the tabernacle was that place of dwelling. And so God says, according to this plan, it won't be necessary to build the tabernacle. See, we'll scratch that. Instead, see, you don't need a special tent uh, outside the camp if God doesn't live in it. It's just a place where he shows up at the door of the tent. And he meets with Moses. And in fact, other people could come outside the, outside the camp and meet outside the camp with God. But God wouldn't be in the camp. He'd be out up in the mountain somewhere, out in the hill somewhere. Now, of course, Moses said, Lord, what a marvelous plan. Uh, Lord, I could have saved a lot of time up in the mountain uh, if you had just said this in the first place, because we've been doing this already. And, and, and this is a great idea, uh, because that's exactly how we want it. Uh, uh, Lord, I have to admit, it is a stiff-necked people. 
uh, I can't pretend that they'll do better next time because uh, I suspect they won't. So uh, it is a stiff-necked people. They are a sinful generation. And uh, this plan is much wiser to put a, a little space, a little distance uh, between us and you, Lord. <laughs> and uh, you and your holiness, you can appear at the tent door out there and uh, that won't be an immediate threat to us living down here in, in the camp. Uh, a pretty appealing idea, isn't it? Isn't that what most people want in religion, uh, really? Uh, you know, a lot of people don't want to get rid of God altogether. You might need him. And, uh, and uh, you know, in, in a real emergency, you might want to get in touch with him. And uh, what better than to have a place where you can, right? And, and a professional who'll take care of God relations. You know, there's Moses. So... Uh, what do they want to minister for anyway? Well, somebody to keep in touch with God so you don't have to keep it on your uh, to-do list all the time, see? Uh, j just let this minister go and do that. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, if he can somehow convey that to you, sprinkle you with holy water or something or other, uh, you, you know, some way that, that uh, you keep up a little contact. Well... Before we uh, smile at that too much, <laughs> uh, we ought to ask a question, really, huh? How close do you want God in your life? Hmm. How close? Do you want to keep them at least the arm's length distance, you know? Are there times when he's not invited? Would it be nice uh, to have him available running a counseling center somewhere where you can go out when you get messed up and get straightened out, you know. But, uh, but uh, in your heart, in your life, every day. But, uh, of course, Moses didn't respond that way that I suggested, did he? He didn't say, Lord, that's a great idea. Uh, Moses said, that's a terrible idea. Mo Moses says, Lord... If you're not going to go up in the midst of us, don't take us anywhere. Don't go. Scratch the operation. Why go? Uh, now, why would Moses say a thing like that? <laughs> well, why were they going to the land? For milk and honey? Most of the people prefer preferred fish and cucumbers in Egypt, right? Uh, it wasn't the diet that drew them to the land. Uh, wh what's so great about the land? Well, this is what's so great about the land. It's the land where God would dwell in the midst of his people. It's the land where God would set his name. It's the land that would be the land of the covenant, uh, God's people with their Lord in the land that he gave them uh, in the inheritance that was from his hand, right? So there's, there is uh, Moses' answer. Lord, if you're not going to go up in the midst of us, uh, don't take us up. There's nowhere to go. So what's Moses' proposal for solving the problem? If he wants to turn down God's plan, uh, this plan that God proposed, uh, what counterproposal uh, can Moses make? Uh, can he uh, say, Lord, what we need is a 12-step program for Israel. We'll get him out of this uh, uh, situation. Uh, uh, can he say, uh, time, Lord, it's just going to take time, but uh, uh, we can work this through. Uh, 
and uh, we'll be all right, and uh, uh, we'll limber up those stiff necks, and uh, we'll begin to, well, that won't work. But what can he propose? See, there's only one place he can go, and that's to the Lord himself. So he says, Lord, I want to know the one that you're sending with me, which is a reference to the angel of the presence. He says, Lord, you say you know me, but Lord, I want to know you. Show me your glory. That's Moses' prayer. Show me your glory, Lord. Show me who you are. Beautiful, beautiful prayer. Lord, reveal yourself to me. That's our hope. And God says he'll do it. And so he puts Moses, you know the story, he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock. He passes by covering it with his hand and then Moses can see God's back, not his face, but his back. And, uh, and then God proclaims his name to Moses. And uh, that, that's a, a beautiful passage where God proclaims his name. 34, 6. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. See? A God who is full of grace and truth. Uh, the only hope that Moses has in, is in God's own mercy. And you have that marvelous word, chesed, uh, the uh, uh, word that uh, so amazingly is used in the Old Testament to describe God. Now, you know, you would expect uh, you would expect that the term would be used uh, you would expect that the term would be used mainly for uh, our devotion to God. It really means devotion. Um, where do we see devotion like that uh, in our society? Um, where you're loyal to your own group. See, it's like a tribal loyalty. Um, well, it depends on whether you're for the cowboys or uh, uh, the, the bull, uh, the uh, buffalo bills, right? Uh, it's, uh, uh, that's the kind of loyalty you see in the United States. I really think that is the supreme expression of male loyalties in the United States of America. It, it, you see it in football, right? Uh, so uh, that's chesed. All right, uh, now, now you've got a definition. Uh, see, it, it, it's uh, fanatical loyalty uh, at its peak. Uh, well, even Phillies, you're supposed to be a Philly fanatic and spell it right, right? So uh, here, here's, uh, here's chesed. But you would understand it for men in relation to God, and there is a sect, you know, of strict Orthodox Jews that are called the Hasidim, uh, the, 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 the chesed people, see? The people that are faithful, that are loyal to God. But the amazing thing is, in the Old Testament, this word is used almost exclusively for God himself, his loyalty to his people. And uh, I'm sorry to say there's uh, one Jewish scholar who takes that to mean that uh, uh, God is stuck. <laughs> he's, uh, he's entered into covenant, and so whether he likes it or not, he's got to be loyal to his people. <laughs> Which, of course, misses the point entirely. Uh, the point of chesed in the Old Testament is that it's the bond of God's grace. You know, uh, 
God loves his people because he loves them. It's the bond that he has himself made. And so now God declares his name to Moses. He's the God of chesed, of loving kindness, of covenantal loyalty, covenantal love. He's that God and the God of truth, Emmet. And there, truth means not simply that he's true and not a liar, but true in the sense that he's faithful, that he's dependable, that he's the God who will keep his promises, will keep his word. Uh, so God says to Moses, uh, all right, Moses, I will go with you. I will go up in the midst of you. The tabernacle will be built and I will dwell among you. And then Moses praises God in one of the most beautiful prayers of the Old Testament. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 34 of Exodus. Moses said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, let the Lord, I pray, go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. The NIV straightens that out and says, although it is a stiff-necked people, but the, uh, the, the Hebrew word key usually means uh, uh, for, and uh, I think Moses is saying that here. The reason the NIV changes it is, is obvious, uh, because in uh, verse 5 of chapter 33, uh, God says, you are a stiff-necked people. If I go up in the midst of you for one moment, I'll consume you. And now Moses says to God, Lord, go in the midst of us because it is a stiff-necked people. And since key sometimes can have a slightly different shade of meaning, you can understand why the translators wanted to push key to that other, side, other kind of meaning because it doesn't seem to make sense. God says, I can't go up among you because you are a stiff-necked people. And Moses says, go up among us because we are stiff-necked people. It doesn't make sense except for what Moses says in the rest of the prayer. Go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us for your inheritance. What an amazing prayer. Lord, go among us, but pardon our sin. Out of your loving kindness, out of your truth, out of your mercy, pardon our sin, Lord, and not give us the inheritance on that uh, other plan, God promised to give them the inheritance. But Moses doesn't pray, give us the inheritance. He prays, take us as your inheritance. You know, some people think the Old Testament doesn't give us a spiritual religion. I mean, listen to Moses. Listen to the prayer of Moses. Uh, take us. Show me your glory, Lord. Having seen your glory, take us as our inheritance. And so... That's right in the heart of the book of Exodus, you see. Everything leads up to that. The giving, the making of the law, the, the confirming of the covenant, Israel's rebellion, uh, the, and then the great question, shall the tabernacle be built? Uh, and the first answer, no, it's uh, too dangerous for God to live in the midst. But then after Moses prays, after God shows his glory, after God declares his name, then yes, the tabernacle will be built. From there on, the book of Exodus just unfolds in a beautiful way. Everything goes right from here on in Exodus. Uh, the people give generously. Uh, God fills Bezalel uh, uh, and others with the Holy Spirit to do the craftsmanship on the tabernacle. Uh, they give more than is, uh, than is needed. The tabernacle's built. And the end of the book of Exodus, the glory of God enters into the tabernacle and... Uh, uh, Moses uh, can't even get anywhere near because of the glory of God's presence. And there's the glory cloud, and there's the Lord right in the midst of his people. Okay, uh, tabernacle's built in a way 
that uh, takes account of the uh, takes account of the fact that there are stiff-necked people. There's a big courtyard, and the courtyard's all veiled off. And then uh, the tabernacle itself uh, uh, has a veil at the front, and then another veil of the Holy of Holies. Uh, so. Uh, it's a whole system of veils. There's a whole structure of insulation because God's a holy God in the midst of this stiff-necked people. Veil, veil, veil. It's not only a veiled-off enclosure for the presence of the Holy One, it's also a way of approach. And so there's the great brazen altar where the offering of sacrifice for sin is provided. Forgive us. We are stiff-necked people. Forgive our iniquity and our sin. And there's the blood of the offering uh, that's offered. And uh, there's the labor where the priest washes himself before entering in. And then there's the, uh, the lampstand that shows the light of the glory of God and the table of uh, the showbread where the bread and the wine uh, for God's table are there. And then there's the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies uh, with the empty seat uh, and the, uh, uh, where that represents the throne of God. No image empty seat. See, it's not only a way of insulation, it's a way of approach. This is how you come into the presence of God. Uh, It's a path, uh, a way of entering. Now, remember what John does? John 1, John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And it's important that he says that. Tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. Moses' prayer, show me your glory. We beheld his glory. Is John thinking about Moses? Yes, right in that passage he says, uh, no man has seen God at any time. Moses didn't see him. Uh, but right in that passage he says, uh, the, uh, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And when John says the law was given by Moses, he's not thinking of what Paul's thinking of when he talks about the law. When Paul thinks of the law, most times he's thinking of the threat of the law, the condemnation of the law, the law that drives us to the grace of God and Jesus Christ. But when John thinks about the law, he's thinking about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And he's thinking about the witness that Moses gave to Jesus Christ. In the fifth chapter of John, uh, Jesus says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote of me. So John, when he says law of Moses, he isn't thinking of the threat of the law. He's thinking of the promise of the law. Uh, And he says, no man has seen God at any time, uh, but we have seen him. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten uh, son of the father. In fact, uh, the only begotten God, Monogonestha us. We have seen him, the only begotten one. We've seen his glory. The word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And when he says full of grace and truth, he's quoting from Exodus 34. So uh, who is the fulfillment? Why, Jesus is. You see, God's purpose, not only that he would meet with Israel in the desert, but that he would dwell with them. And that he would dwell with them ultimately, not only in the tabernacle, but in the temple. He would have his fixed residence among them. And the glory of God that was seen over the tabernacle filled the temple, filled Solomon's temple. And there there was the the presence of the Lord among them. 
God dwelling with his people. But what did that mean? I mean, you know, a tent of uh, badger skins and all that, and uh, uh, all the acacia wood and the, the gold. What did all that mean? What did Solomon's temple mean for all of its glory, uh, built of stones and uh, cedar? Why, of course, what it meant was there's a place where God dwells among men. But Jesus stood up after cleansing the temple and as John tells us uh, in the second chapter, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What is the true temple? The temple of Christ's body. Because what does it all mean that God would dwell among us? It means that the incarnation would take place. Uh, what is the dwelling of God with men? Emmanuel, God with us. Everything in the tabernacle was just pointing forward uh, to Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the one who is the offering, the sacrifice. He is the one who is the priest. Uh, he is the one who doesn't need to offer for his own sins, but is offered for our sins, priest and sacrifice. He is the light of the world, the lampstand. He is the bread of life, the true manna that's given from the Father. Uh, he is the one who takes his seat upon the throne of God, that seat that's reserved for him between the cherubim. Uh, there, we can make no image because God makes his own image. And uh, we are made in his image, but Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that image uh, made in, uh, the, in uh, our image that we might be made in his image and made like him. Well, we, uh, we break at this point and go to chapel. <clears throat> Now, we've been talking about the fact that redemption is initiated by the Lord in his redeeming act of covenantal liberation and in his abiding presence, the covenantal relation. And in thinking of the abiding presence, uh, we see how that is symbolized in the building of the tabernacle and in the temple. And we see how it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the true temple. And now uh, we want to think about uh, the, that the redemption is initiated by the Lord, not only in his redeeming act and in his abiding presence, but in his sovereign word, in the covenantal uh, law by which uh, God uh, is revealed. The uh, law of God that reveals who he is and what is pleasing in his sight. And uh, he is revealed uh, as uh, the God uh, who is faithful to his people, the God of uh, chesed, of covenant grace and love. He reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush. He's the I am God. Uh, he is... Uh, uh, the God, therefore, who speaks and who identifies himself personally in order that he may be worshipped. Uh, revealing his name to his people uh, has the significance of bonding himself to his people. Uh, it's interesting that in uh, uh, Western slang, or the slang of the old Westerns anyway, um, 
a name was often called a handle. What's your handle, buddy? And uh, the, uh, the handle means that that's how you get hold of somebody, you see. And uh, God gives us a handle. He gives us his name that we may call upon that name, that we may lay hold on him. And uh, thereby gives us uh, his word in its, uh, in its supreme form, I think we can say. Uh, because whenever God speaks, it's a word of power. He speaks and it's done. He commands and it stands fast. He says, let there be light, and there is light. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and enmity is put between the serpent and the, the seed. So God speaks, and it's done in his word of power. But when God says, I am here, uh, as he said at the burning bush, that he has come, uh, he heard the cry of his people, and he has come. And when he speaks, therefore, not only his word of power, but his word of presence, here I am, and then gives us his name, uh, here I am, and this is my name, this is who I am. Uh, this means, you see, that God is personally revealed uh, so that uh, God's word uh, is uh, not only descriptive of God, which it is, uh, but it also... Uh, expresses the very presence of God. And therefore, John calls Jesus Christ the Word, the Logos, uh, the Word who is with God, the Word who is God, and the Word who reveals God so that we see his grace and glory. So, uh, redemption then is uh, uh, directed, uh, it's given by the Lord, directed by the Lord, and now revealed in his covenantal uh, law. Now, uh, the fact that uh, God does speak the words of his covenant is, of course, of central significance for all the scriptures. But uh, we must not forget that, as I said in the last hour, uh, the word of the law, the Ten Commandments at Sinai, the words of the covenant, are given in the context of God's redeeming act. He has brought them out of Egypt and he introduces himself as the God who has delivered them and then says, this is my law, this is my covenantal law. So it's to a redeemed people that God gives his law. Now, I've noted that uh, we must present the, the law as uh, it really comes from God. Uh, that is, uh, not only does he speak it, from Sinai with his own voice thundering from Sinai but he also writes it and in those passages that I've noted uh, it says that the commandments are written on tablets of stone with the finger of God you know a lot of the arguments that develop in hermeneutics uh, are only uh, feasible arguments if this never happened uh, because the first written scripture, according to scripture, was written by God himself, which uh, certainly resolves a lot of problems about transmission, doesn't it? And uh, about uh, infallible originals, written with the finger of God. 
Now, the, the people couldn't bear to hear his voice, but they did have a constant miracle present in the Ark of the Covenant. See? Oh, I know it, it's a little confusing there as the, the Moses breaks the first tablets of stone and the second ones are made. And whether it was written by Moses at God's dictation or whether it was written by God himself, it, it isn't the easiest thing to determine what is really uh, stated there. Uh, but at least the point is that God himself is the original author of the Ten Commandments. So there's no question it is his own word. Uh, but uh, it's his own word given by the God who says, I am Yahweh, your God. I'm the Lord, your God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, the problem comes if we treat the law of God in a legalistic fashion. Uh, how do we do that sometimes in teaching and preaching? Well, there are preachers that uh, have preached on the Ten Commandments uh, following the outline of, uh, we'll say, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, or perhaps even referring to the longer exposition in the Westminster Larger Catechism. So uh, you can't beat that, and here's the uh, uh, way in which you're told uh, what God commands and what he forbids under each commandment. And so from time immemorial in Reformed churches, there have been uh, sermons preached with two points what God commands and what he forbids, or to leave things with a more positive uh, spin, uh, what God forbids and what he commands. And uh, uh, there it is. Uh, but uh, there it isn't, uh, because, you see, uh, if you preach that way, this is what you don't do and this is what you do, uh, you're going to lead, leave an impression of a legalistic structure. Uh, the, the, now, the shorter catechism and the larger catechism, they are not documents of legalism by no means. For all the Reformed confessions first tell you the story of God's grace. And having been told about salvation by grace, uh, you're then told how to serve him. Uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, the, the divisions are set up so that... Uh, uh, the last division is uh, the service of gratitude, how we praise God, and that's where you get the law. So uh, the, the, there's no problem with the Reformed confessions that way. They're not legalistic documents. Uh, but if uh, you're just going to preach on the commandments and ignore the total context, uh, you'll inevitably uh, start preaching. Uh, you may not preach it, but uh, the, what's going to communicate is a legalistic righteousness, which either drives people to despair or, uh, uh, or, or gives them uh, the false lead that they can somehow earn heaven the old-fashioned way uh, by uh, working, you know. Well, uh, the, let's, um, let's think how uh, Christ uh, fulfills the Ten Commandments, huh? Let's not forget that. Let's preach Christ as we preach the Ten Commandments. Uh, now, the New Testament incorporates the, the Ten Commandments into the structure of uh, Christ's revelation, right? Uh, and, uh, well, uh, let's, uh, let's take uh, the Seventh Commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. 
Now, in the Old Testament, God speaks about Israel as an adulterous people. And uh, one of the charges against them in uh, accusing them of spiritual adultery is the fact that they're guilty of marital infidelity, that they are adulterous in their sexual behavior. Uh, but uh, the great charge against Israel is not simply that they're guilty of marital infidelity, but that they are guilty of spiritual infidelity. They have turned aside from the Lord to go after idols. And as the old King James Version used to state, to go a-whoring after other gods. That's the charge that's always made against Israel. Now, how, how do you understand that? Well, in the New Testament, it's certainly picked up, isn't it? And it's applied to Christ. Uh, Christ is the bridegroom. Jesus himself says that. Uh, he's the bridegroom. And, of course, that's against the Old Testament background, the prophecy of Hosea, uh, God is married to his people. And Christ comes uh, in distinction from John the Baptist. John the Baptist prepares for his coming, but he isn't the bridegroom. He's not the Lord come to claim his bride. But Jesus is the Lord who's come to claim his bride. And uh, Paul, in his epistle to the Ephesians, uh, talks about that, doesn't he? Uh, now, he starts out, he starts out by talking uh, about uh, wives and husbands. And then he says uh, to the husband uh, that he should, uh, for uh, verse 23 of Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, being himself the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Even so ought husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his own wife loveth himself, for no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as Christ also the church, because we are members of his body." For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great, but I speak in regard of Christ and of the church. Nevertheless, do you also severally, each one, uh, love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, that's a fascinating passage, isn't it? Uh, Paul's talking to wives and husbands, but he keeps slipping off the subject. I mean, uh, is he like a theological professor, you know? That, uh, he, he just keeps sliding off to talk about Christ and the church. And so at the very end, he has to say, nevertheless, uh, don't forget, I'm really talking about husbands and wives. Well, you can understand why he needs to say that, because he uh, hasn't been talking about just husbands and wives. He's been talking about Christ and the church. Well, now, that raises the question. Uh, how come uh, God has uh, used this illustration so uh, completely and so frequently, so pervasively? 
Well, you can say, uh, the Lord uh, knows how to communicate. Uh, he, he looks down and he sees these people. How am I going to get through to them? And uh, the Lord says, uh, I know how to do it. It's, uh, uh, they, they take uh, this uh, sexual relation of marriage, they take that very seriously. And uh, uh, since that means a lot to them, uh, that's a wonderful illustration. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll grab that illustration and go with it, and that way the idea will get through about how they should be faithful to me. Uh, but no, it didn't quite happen that way, did it? I mean, uh, uh, the Lord didn't look down and find an already existing situation. He created the situation, right? Uh, he made Adam and Eve, uh, male and female, and he made Eve from the body of Adam. It might be clear that they are to be one body in marriage and so on. So, uh, uh, and, and the, it's the Lord who says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, so, uh, what does God do? Uh, he teaches us the reality of a jealous love. And he authorizes a jealous love uh, that... Uh, uh, there is a love that is not to be shared, uh, the love of a husband and wife. Now, if you just think in the abstract, uh, you wouldn't think of that, would you? You'd think the more loving you are, the more people you would love, which was the principle in the Oneida community, except uh, that the old goat that ran the place had his own ideas, but uh, that what he was presenting was that, uh, uh, that uh, in Christ... Uh, uh, there's free love, see, because we all love one another, don't we? And therefore, uh, we, uh, we, we share uh, sexual love as we would any other love. But now, uh, see, the Lord uh, says no, no. You don't share sexual love. It's, uh, uh, it's love for one uh, uh, faithfulness in the bond of marriage to one person, not to everybody. And... Now, the Lord said that to teach us that there is a jealous love in order that we might be able to understand his jealousy in his love for us and our jealousy in our love for him. See, God wants us to know that our love for him can't be shared with other gods, nor can we share it with any idol that we make, but it must be kept for the Lord. You see what I'm getting at. Uh, what I'm trying to show is that uh, Christ doesn't come in later as a kind of afterthought, that the reason why uh, adultery is forbidden in the law of God is not simply to establish family stability in Israel, that's a sociological consequence of it, but it has a spiritual purpose. And the spiritual purpose of the seventh commandment is to show us uh, God's endorsement of a jealous love in marriage in order that we might have a model of the jealous love that God has for his people and that they have for him. So that uh, all through the Ten Commandments, uh, we are being pointed to uh, the uh, purpose for which God gives them uh, which is uh, not simply uh, that we might uh, have uh, stability in our life together, but that we might realize 
the commandments that summarize the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the, the second commandment, which is like it, in the sense that it derives from it, uh, thou shalt love uh, thy neighbor as thyself. So there's God's uh, love uh, for us uh, shown in his salvation, and therefore our love for him, and uh, from that, our love for one another. You see, that's what, uh, that's what the commandment requires, right? Now, what does Jesus do in his teaching of, uh, of the commandment of God? Well, I've already anticipated part of the answer. He shows the summary of it, doesn't he? Uh, from uh, uh, the, the, the great commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and the second like unto it, uh, from this commandment hang all the law and the prophets. See, everything else God has to say uh, hangs from this. This is the pivotal uh, relation of love that we should have toward God and toward one another. Now, in terms of our love for one another, what does Jesus do that's so uh, astonishing in, with that commandment? What does he do to it? Or how does he uh, probe to its depths what it's getting at? Exactly, the Good Samaritan. And what's the point in that Good Samaritan parable? All right, that's right. Um, it's, uh, it's to show that the lawyer asked the wrong question, right? See, the lawyer uh, came to Jesus and uh, uh, he came to the right person. Uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He couldn't have come to a better person. Couldn't have had a better question. What must I do? But uh, he blew it all when he asked another question. <laughs> Because uh, he had the wrong question. Who is my neighbor? When, the, when he said, who is my neighbor, uh, what was he really uh, asking? Exactly. How many people must I love? See? He's coming at it from a legalistic perspective. And if you're going to get eternal life by loving people, you better uh, have a short list of people to love, right? Uh, you get too many on that list, you're in trouble. Uh, sometimes it's even hard to love the, the person you picked out with love in mind. But uh, uh, nevertheless, uh, the, it, to love everybody, if you're going to love uh, uh, people wholesale, uh, he, wants, he wants to cut this down. Uh, but then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and of course he turns the question around. At the end, uh, he doesn't say... Um, uh, who who is the neighbor, uh, but in, in the sense of who is my neighbor, but he asks, uh, who are you a neighbor to? <laughs> who was the neighbor to the man that fell among the thieves? And of course, the answer is the, the Samaritan was the neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves. And as Jesus tells the story, he has the priest and the Levite, they both come, they both see the man, they both walk by on the other side of the road 
uh, and they don't provide for him. And yet they were supposed to be the pastors of Israel, you know, the shepherd that care for the sheep. And there was the man uh, looking just like Israel in Isaiah 1, uh, all bruises and blood and not a sound place on him and stripped naked and all that, just like Isaiah 1. So, so there's the, the people and their problem. And then here comes the priest. They don't, he doesn't do anything. Uh, the uh, Levite doesn't do anything. And then of all people, the Samaritan comes by. And what does he do? Anything? Everything. Couldn't have done more if it had been his brother. Uh, he doesn't uh, just uh, pick up the man. He puts him on his beast. And the, man, the wounded man rides and he walks. And it's a long way and it's hot and it's going down down, down to Jericho, getting hotter the lower you go. And so here he goes, and, and uh, he binds up the man's wounds, and presumably he didn't have a first aid kit, so he must have torn up some of his own clothing to get the bandages, and, and uh, pours in oil and wine that he would carefully have husbanded, you know, for his journey. He does everything, and then breaks his journey to stay and take care of the man to whom he had no obligation whatever. And then after he takes care of him, he even says when he goes uh, uh, to the innkeeper, uh, you, you keep taking care of him, and uh, if it costs you any more, he gave him two coins, you know, and if it costs you any more, when I come by this way again, I'll repay. You know, put it on my credit card, I'm a traveler, and uh, I'll take care of it. So there it is. Now, now, what's the difference? Dramatic story, dramatically told. Priest comes, looks by, passes by. Levite comes, looks, passes by. Good Samaritan comes, looks, and he has compassion on him and draws near. <laughs> See? So the difference between passing by and drawing near is compassion. So the whole, whole parable hinges on compassion, right? And uh, what's the love of compassion like? What's different about that love of compassion as illustrated in that parable with the Samaritan? Uh, did the priest owe something to the wounded man? Sure he did. It was his job. He was supposed to be a shepherd of Israel. Uh, did the Levite owe something? Uh, would there be any question that the Levite had an obligation? No, no question whatever. Levites were supposed to be carers in Israel. So they both should have taken care would anybody expect the Samaritan to do anything? Maybe kick him, but uh, I mean, you know, Samaritans equal Palestinian, uh, uh, Palestinians in the present setup, uh, uh, Jews and Israelis and Palestinians uh, read uh, uh, Jews and Samaritans in Jesus' day, same kind of hostility. Uh, so you wouldn't expect uh, a Palestinian uh, uh, in, in Fada, uh, uh resistor, uh, to uh, treat a wounded Jew that way, would you? He might have thought that one of his pals had done it, right? So, uh, uh, that, what what is completely out of out of character? What what's so completely astonishing? Well, that's what Jesus is showing: the love of compassion, the love of free grace. Uh, the love that everyone would say couldn't be demanded. See, anybody setting up a Kantian ethical system, uh, uh, in spite of Kant's uh, references to benevolence, 
uh, on a strictly Kantian basis, uh, uh, you wouldn't have any obligation. See, what are your obligations? Uh, well, you wouldn't have any obligation to love that man. The Samaritan had no obligation. Let, let him go by on the other side. So what kind of love is? Love of grace, love of compassion, which is why in the New Testament, compassion is uh, referred to God or to Christ in the other occurrences of it. Uh, it refers to Paul having uh, the, the compassion of Christ in himself, but it's still Christ's compassion. So where do you see the compassion? In Jesus, don't you? I mean, that's the love of compassion. So uh, what kind of love are, uh, is modeled for us in the life and teaching of Jesus? By his own love. 